Well, after that introduction, I'm trying to find my head. <laughs> Please be seated. Well, uh, greetings to the church and greetings to Jason in absentia, not because he wants to, but because he was critically ill. I got a phone call or a message from online, and uh, both Bobby and I just looked at each other, and I saw a little tear coming from Bobby's side. Well, I normally howl. I don't even wait for the little tear. I just come and cry, <laughs> and really shocked. And so we began to pray and seek God. And um, by the grace of God, God did something special for Jason, but special for Sue and, and for you, my dear, and for the family, but also for this family. So they say in rugby they have the bomb squad, the guys who come on, on reserve just to push the game a little further. I'm not too sure if that's appropriate for me. They brought back from retirement is a better word. But it's a joy to be here. A little bit about myself, understanding uh, my identity. Well, I was the baby of a family of four siblings, three siblings, and I being the fourth. Born to Magdalena Kaladelfos, the Greek immigrant to South Africa came with her father from the island of Ithaca. And she married Albertus Jokurbus Erasmus. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's it. And so, growing up, uh, when it came to me, my eldest brother, his name is every Greek starts the family with Yori, which means George. You know, George, the cafe owner, it's everyone. But amongst us is Yori. And of course, the second one is Nick, because that's another, Nicholas. And my sister is Maria. And so my mother wanted to name me Petros, P-E-T-R-O. And Petros means Peter. But my father knew that there's an Afrikaans Macy's name called Petru also. <laughs> so he decided to give me a Spanish name to a Greek mother, an Afrikaans father. That's why I'm Pedro. <laughs> we grew up in a, a salt river, uh, one down from Woodstock, as some people would say, in a flat flat was built in the 1930s. We didn't have hot water, because those days everything was done differently. And growing up, we had paraffin drums, and we heated up our hot water. And we thought we were living in luxury when we got a wood burner. And that was normal life. That's the way it was for me. I didn't think I was deprived. I didn't think I was losing out on anything. I had fun. But there came a time in my life I started asking, who am I really? Am I a Greek? Am I Afrikaner? Am I Diamaka? What is this? <laughs> and uh, because there was a search for my own identity. 
who am I? When I was amongst the Greeks, strangely enough, I'm quite an extrovert. They made too much noise. They took over the street. They visit my house, but the whole street knows they're coming. <laughs> when they go to a restaurant, people get up and leave because they take over the place. And I didn't enjoy that. I was sort of fun. Is that me? No. My father was a sterling Afrikaner gentleman. Wore a hat. Second World War veteran. And uh, very prim and proper. In fact, in his retirement, he still wore a tie every morning when he woke up. And I'd say, where are you going? No, I'm getting up and I must look proper. Shaved every day. Just that's who he was. And I kind of found myself more in that world, you know. But who was I? And then when I was 16, I got an ID book. 54, 12, 17, 50, 15, 082. And I thought, now that's who I am. But then I was drafted into the army as a young boy, young post-school. And I was given a military number, 703-17904. Kind of what? Who is Pedro? And I'm sure you've asked questions like that. Who am I really? Am I this? Am I that? And South Africa was notorious and evilly branded people because they looked a certain color. Are they that? Are they this? And so we live a journey of life. My story this morning is a very personal story, so if I can ask you to pull up your chair and sit in the lounge with me this morning. If it was a cold winter's day, I'd have a fire. But I want to share with you my journey of discovering my true identity. My identity that was found in Christ Jesus. Sharing it with you from my own experiences. And then at a young age, seeking who am I, where am I going, What's my purpose? What's all of those shaped my identity? And I began a search, and one of the great ancients, who was the one who laid the foundation in the early church, he said, We were made by God and for God. And we only find our rest until we find our rest in Him. Yeah. Yeah. St. Augustine. I didn't know those sayings. I just went to church with my parents and I didn't know there was a hunger in me. But God somehow, in a miraculous but in a very ordinary way, arranged that my brother went to a camp in his last year of high school and was deeply impacted and came to know the Lord. And I saw there was something different in his life. And that began my search, and I came to know the Lord on 52 years ago on an Easter weekend. And that began the trajectory of my life. But I had to take time to discover who I now was in Christ. That was the Pedro that I was born into a family. I have values from them. I have deep shaping from them. 
But now, in Christ, who was I? If you've come to know Jesus Christ, if you have said yes to him, and you're on your journey, and you're stumbling, and, you, and you're not sure where you're going, and some days it's a good Christian day, and other days it's like, really, am I called a Christian? I want to say to you that at conversion, in Genesis, at John chapter 3, verse 3, which is a foundational scripture, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again. In other words, Pedro, you were born with an identity. Now I'm going to give you a new identity. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 This means that anyone who belongs to Christ, now even if you're in his family, but you're a bit of a wayward one. You know, I've raised with brothers. We're always looking for one of them. I was always being sent out as the youngest, go find your brother, or the other way around. Maybe you on the fringes, but you, you're drawn to Jesus. My question that answers to you is, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life, identity, has gone. And a new identity has begun. Now as you begin to embrace this new identity that in Christ I am, I belong to God, something begins to shift, not on your shape, I wish it did help me in my shape as well, <laughs> and many of you, but it's your inside, your world inside. We call it your spirit and your person, your soul. The inner Pedro has been renewed. And you begin a journey. You begin a path. Or start living from a new agenda. It's the kingdom. It's Christ. Sue adequately put it, putting him in his rightful place. But I want you to hear this, and if you forget the rest of what I say today, that doesn't give you permission to part, you know, stop listening now. But listen to this one. You come now from a position. I'm the youngest of a family of four. I was positioned as a parent, as a, a son of a Greek mother who was illiterate in English. And of a father who was Afrikaans and had value system and value system. I speak Afrikaans fluently, but I can only speak the words in Greek that you're not allowed to use from a pulpit. But what is my new status? Yeah. Who am I? I was given a name, I was given a number. This is my ID card. Your status is the beloved child of God. Yeah. Not the stepchild. Yeah. Yeah. Not the naughty child. The beloved, because when Jesus was baptized, never performed 
any miracle. He was just not even into, no one recognized who he was. Gets baptized. And a voice from heaven speaks. I want you to hear what the first words that Jesus heard from his father audibly. Not, now go out and preach the gospel and be a good, good boy. No. Try hard and see how far you get in your faith. Remember, don't do this, don't do that. The first words Jesus ever heard is, you are my beloved child. Now listen to the next thing. And you bring me joy. There's nothing like knowing that you bring joy to people. I've been a minister for, yeah, 27 years and 16 years as a missionary. It's 40 odd years that I've served. Preaching a good sermon doesn't do it for you. Knowing that you have brought something into someone's life. Now Jesus hears that, affirming. And now he starts living out of a core belief central to him now. My identity is, yes, my biological father's in heaven, I know. My earthly father was Joseph. My mother biologically is Maria, Mary, Magda. And I have siblings. And I've come from this tribe. And my people are called the Israelites. But my identity is I am a child of God. But not just a child. How many children do you have? We have three sons. No, I have three beloved sons. That's the voice But sadly, many of us believe that it's only reserved for the good Christians, the special holy ones. Those guys that just like, man, I wish I were like them. Or you even get a little irritated, they're so Christian. <laughs> and you become what my dear friends, when I served in Manenberg, you become jajarach. There's no other word I can get of them. Because you look at yourself and say, I'm not that good. So it must be these beloved ones are the ones that are good so they are loved. You see, we struggle that God loves us unconditionally. Whoa, 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 whoa. Life is always filled with conditions. But I want you to hear and break through and come into a place of understanding 
what a beloved son and daughter is, they are unconditionally loved by their father. He loves you regardless of your imperfections. But people don't do that, no, but God does. He loves you when you're struggling. He loves you when you're doubting. He loves you when you actually don't feel anything for him. He loves you when it's even impossible for you to like yourself because you've done some things that are so dark and you're so ashamed of. When you wouldn't even trust yourself. But he never stops loving you. Why? Because your identity is my beloved son. Listen to 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to 10. Love comes from God. For God is love. God showed us how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Romans chapter 8. Who then will condemn us? No one. No one. It's a question. Who can condemn you? No one. For Christ died for us and was raised to life for us. And he's sitting at the place of honor at the right hand side, pleading for us. Pleading there means interceding. That means involved in your daily affairs. Your hurts and your sorrows. Can anything separate us from Christ's love? Woe. You have no idea, Pedro, what I've done and what I've been up to. I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither death or life, neither angels or demons, neither our fears for today and our worries about tomorrow. So relax. If you get a little fearful, you're not excluded from God and says, where's your faith? Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, and that was one of your theme verses that you're going to take through this whole series. God decided in advance to adopt you into his own family. That's where your identity comes from. I should be called Pedro, child of God, Erasmus. Adopted you into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. Not because you earned it, but because of Jesus. This is what he wanted to do. He wasn't forced to. 
you were chosen. He came and found you. And he gave, his great gave him great pleasure bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. That is what he wanted to do. It gave him great pleasure. I said I'm sharing my story, so I'll be very vulnerable with you this morning. The thought that God loved me like that was a struggle for me. And I preached it. But somewhere inside, it kind of didn't always sit. Somewhere I felt I had to please him. Somewhere I thought, why should he love me? Somehow deep inside I didn't, deep down, I wasn't assured that I was worth loving. Because I wasn't like others. It was while I was doing some extra studies in the ministry after I had graduated and I'd been a minister and a missionary for a while. I preached about God's love, I taught it, I studied it, but I went through a crisis of faith, a defining moment in my life. Part of my studies, I had to write a paper on a book which was prescribed reading, and it must have been about the fifth, no, about the 52nd page, not 50, 52nd page, when I read a comment that the author had said, the book is called Rooted in God and His Love, when I said it is impossible for God not to love us, because God is love. Now I was going to write the paper, but actually I couldn't, I struggled to write it because my integrity said, how can you write something that you're not even convinced of? Now I didn't get up on Sunday morning and say, by the way, I'm really struggling with knowing that Jesus loved me. I didn't do all of that. I went into my private place with God. I knew that he loved me. But the knowledge was a real knowledge of theoretical knowledge. Theoretical knowledge is when you know something is true, it can be proven. Theoretical knowledge is you can see that the tests and the scientists and the uh, the mathematicians have worked it out and come up with it is workable. It is plausible and it is factual. So I believe there were miracles. 
but maybe not for me. I did a lot of soul searching. I did a deep journey. I put off writing that paper for three months. Because it was a struggle to fully embrace the truth that God loves me unconditionally. I thought God only loved the good Pedro. I was brutally honest that when Pedro slipped and fell, it didn't mean God doesn't get disappointed with me. But I interpreted it as rejection. Because my root was rejection. Now God also rejects us. So why do we struggle to embrace that truth? Why? What is it in us that we struggle to know, we know our identity. If I were to raise my hand and say all those who follow Jesus know that they're loved of God, everyone will put their hand up. But the truth that I'm trying to go a little deeper and go in the inner soul are you embracing that love? Well, the reason is how we develop our identity is that we have what we call a narrative that has been speaking to us since the time we are born. The first words we've ever heard begin a narrative, a story of our life. From childhood and right through your whole life, these thoughts that are put in your mind begin to shape your identity, begin to cause you to react to certain things, causes you, and experiences like that, it molds your values. My dad would say to me as a young boy, always take a tiki. Now, please, for many of you who wouldn't know what that means, I may be speaking Greek to you. A tiki was a two and a half cents some people are shaking their head. That dates you, by the way. <laughs> it was a little coin, two and a half cents, and we used to use it in what was called a ticky box. Now, it's not the saving. We actually, once upon a time in South Africa, had things that you could put money in and phone home. Yep. Not in your pocket. <laughs> and he said, always keep a ticky in your back pocket. I'm about this big. Because you can call me when you're in trouble. Now listen to the next phrase. Because you can trust no one. So the narrative is I can trust my dad, but not you. I'm friendly. I'm not going to share with you. I'm not going to open my heart to you. What happens if you reject me? So that's the narrative we build around our life. I'll tell you another story of a man who's now in his 70s. I've known him all my life. His mother in anger said to him one day, 
I don't know why you were ever born. You can never do anything right. Get over it, we say. But the narrative began to impact his thinking. You know, the saddest thing is, he's gone through three marriages. He's one of the most intelligent people I've ever known. Never succeeded anywhere. He would say these words when he bought a car. Oh, it's probably a junkie. It'll break down on me anyway. Brand new guy. Because I can never do anything right. Now that narrative begins to form images in your mind. We begin to see people as don't trust them or trust them. We begin to see ourselves as a walking mistake. And the image then creates a belief system. I start believing what I think, even if it's not true. And so my behavior now is driven by a belief system that you don't trust anybody, so get to know them just this far and keep them at the circle. And so as soon as you get any awkward, you, you interpret it as a rejection. We believe the untruths. We create an image because that's what they say that a painting creates, uh, can speak a thousand words. We have images in our mind. If you say to your granddaughter, which I have two lovely children, granddaughters, draw a picture. They draw what they think you look like. Don't get touchy and say, I don't look like that, eh? <laughs> they, 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 that's what they're doing. The image is a stick and a, a little bit of hair. I don't know. They, that's their image. And we have now transferred that image onto God. We've lived long enough to believe the lie. The lie has created an image of God in our mind. The lie has shifted into our belief system. And our belief system moves into our behavior, which shapes our identity. And Christ comes and he says, when you were born again, I took that old one and made you a new identity. Splinter it. Outside you look the same, but inside, you're not that ugly person that you have told yourself you are. So where do we start? Well, we start replacing the false narrative. I'm going to give you two false narratives that drive 
Christians. Over 50% of all Christians interviewed will tell you these are the two most common narratives, stories that have shaped their image of God. Number one, God is an angry God. No, God is an angry judge. He is God. But boy, he's got a stick waiting to discipline you, punish you, isolate you, not talk to you. What happens? None of it happens here. I know when your wife upsets you and you just uh, trek up a mood inside of you. And so what happens? Hello, how are you doing? You just... Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it never happens here. It starts off like this. How are you doing this morning? Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. We feel that isolation. You don't want to be with that person. That's what we think God thinks of us. God stops loving me. The second most dominant false narrative is I must earn God's love and approval. So I'll work harder in the church. As I was writing my paper, I was pouring my soul out that's years ago. And I wrote something that I gave to Bobby to read. said, I've been building the church to get God's approval? Question mark. Have I been serving as a missionary? Is it being driven by my ego, my recognition, my approval of others? You see, we shift into a performance-related relationship. And so we serve God not out of delight, but out of duty. So what do you need to embrace to change that? We're starting only, there's many other things, but I'm just focusing on this area of your changing the narrative. You've got to be lean to really hear that God is an Abba Father. In the garden, Jesus uses the most intimate word that you could ever, ever give to God. My granddaughters call me Papa. I love it. God's word of intimacy. No Jew ever called God, not even Father. They called him Almighty God. So notice sometimes your prayers, Almighty Heavenly Father. No, uh, uh, sometimes it's just Almighty Heavenly God. No, Father. He is Almighty and He's Heavenly. But above all else, he's your Abba. Someone who wants to be involved in your daily life. In your sorrows, in your weaknesses, in your struggle. He wants you to call on him. 
The second one is, you've got to see God as extravagant and generous. Not a scarcity God. Not a, if you work hard, you will get. Now, let me give you a quick story of, very quickly, I'm skimming over, read it on your own time. It's the book of Genesis, excuse me, Matthew. Matthew's gospel tells us about a story of a man who had a field and he went to hire. He hired people at 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock, and 5 o'clock. But he paid them all the same. And the workers got upset. He said, how's that fair? I work all day, I get the same as him. I work half day, I get the same as him. It's not the, and it wasn't a union at work here. It was just these people in their heart feeling, I feel unfairly treated. Do you know what the response was? Are you jealous? Verse 15 of, of chapter 20, Matthew. Are you jealous that I have chosen to be generous? He's extravagant. Luke 15. I'm moving on. I could spend a much more time here. But what's your first step? What's the first step of embracing the changing? A well-known person I read, a philosopher and a great Christian, said these words. He was a minister. He says, if one thing I can teach my congregation to change their way of living is to teach them how to pray. Why? Because prayer is about talking to someone. You don't take out a book and study your wife's attributes. That's what we do with God. I want to know what that word means that he said this. No, no, we don't go there. We just say, how are you feeling, love? Mm. You know what that means? Not to lack it. What word is that in the dictionary? Mm. <laughs> but you know them. Yeah. You get to know God through prayer. You get to know God when you deepen your prayer life. Doesn't mean you don't read your Bible. But the one discipline I try to teach people, the one practice I try to teach people the most, is go and start with prayer. Very briefly, how do I pray then? Number one, and I've got four things and I'm timing myself. Number one, you come with your whole heart. Psalm 51 Verse 17, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and a repentant heart, O oh God. Don't come with a study of God. Come with a study of your heart. A young minister once got up preaching in a very humble church, and he preached the most eloquent sermon up there. And one of the elders, who was a very humble man, he said, Jesus said, feed my sheep, much up my giraffes, please. Jesus said, feed my sheep, not my giraffes. Then the other elder said to him, I'm telling you, when you get to heaven, Pastor, you're going to discover something. Yes. God's not going to measure my head. He's going to measure my heart. Sure. You go with your whole heart. You're broken, your weak heart, your struggling heart. Number two, bring yourself in humility. Listen to what Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 says. You are blessed when you come, when you're at the end of your rope. 
with less of you, there's more of God. You come with your heart, you come in humility, you come honestly. <coughs> Excuse me. You go to court, you say, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and the last 10%. Tell God everything. For the Spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. And the last one. <coughs> you come to God with your humanity. Don't pretend to be who you're not. Just come as you are. If you're a kind of guy that just like struggles with details and you're perfect, and if you're a kind of guy that just wants to, yeah, 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 talk and never get to the chest, come as you are. Come to a place that you're not perfect and yet God loves you. That you are broken yet God loves you. Bring your whole humanity and you'll discover the deepening of God's love for you and that's your true identity. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for your special grace that's upon us and stays with us. In Jesus' name, amen.